Welcome. You are listening to the Curiosity Never Retires podcast presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at University of the Pacific. to the Curiosity Never Retires podcast. This is our first official interview. My name is Jennifer Juanitas. I'm the program director for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at Pacific, also known as OLLI at Pacific. Uh, today we have our first guest, Dr. Carla Strickland Hughes, assistant professor at University of the Pacific. And um, that's also under the College of Pacific, correct? Yes. Okay, excellent. So welcome. I'm so excited to have you as my first interview. And uh, I think I just want to start with letting the audience get to know you a little bit. So I know that you are a graduate. Uh, you, you got your Ph.D. at University of Florida, correct? Yes. I did my Ph.D. and my master's at the University of Florida, and I finished in August of 2017 and immediately came here to the University of the Pacific. Um, and while I was studying in Florida, I also earned a certificate in gerontology. So I've had a specialty in studying aging from an interdisciplinary perspective, too. Excellent. Well, that's why we love having you as a part of OLLI. <laughs> it's your area of expertise. Um, so I just, I was curious, like, what brought you to California and UOP? Like, you know, from Florida. Goodness. Well, <laughs> you know, it wasn't exactly Lake Tahoe and Yosemite and Big Sur, although those are absolute treats. Um, but I was really driven to find a psychology department and a university that equally emphasized excellence in teaching and excellence in scholarship. Um, so the fit here at Pacific seemed to be a good one. Um, we have great students who are eager and enthusiastic. And there are more people who are over 65 as a percent of the total population in California compared to some other states. So I knew that it would be a place where I could do my research and have a nice practical impact for the community. Well, that's interesting. So we have a high percentage of people over 65 in California. Yes. I guess in some areas it's a, people see this as a retirement, you know, coming to California, I guess. So... You came to California, you're here at the UOP, and, you know, it's, we're, we're kind of close to some cool stuff, you know, mm -hmm. being in the valley. We're not far from Yosemite or San Francisco or things, so there's places to go. And Stockton's a beautiful community as well. Um, so you mentioned, you know, your students here at the campus, and that's one of the things that we do, or we collaborate on with Ollie, is that we actually have our members work with your students mm -hmm. and which I think is just one of my favorite things that we offer that we're able to collaborate and have that intergenerational crossover. Can you tell us more about what you do with that? So these intergenerational activities have been a real treat and just a delight in my time at Pacific. Um, I have another colleague who studies developmental psychology in this department, uh, Dr. Jessica Grady, and she actually did an intergenerational discussion group with Ollie before I came to Pacific. Um, but I actually have a not-so-secret goal of addressing ageism and changing attitudes towards aging. And I want my students, and really everybody that I meet, um, to know that aging isn't necessarily bad, 
and aging doesn't begin when you're old. And there are things about how well you age that you can modify through behavior and lifestyle and attitude. So to help address these age attitudes held by both young and old alike, so we find in research that four-year-olds and 94-year-olds have some negative attitudes and conceptions about what aging entails. Um, I try to create these experiences where we can intermix and have younger and older adults engage in meaningful discourse about aging per se, or this semester we've done even a book club. So I had students in my um, Honors Pacific Seminar and Ollie at Pacific members or students um, read the Tuesdays with Maury book. They came and discussed the themes and how it may apply to their lives. And we even had a film screening of the uh, film adaptation or the Oprah, you know, made for TV <laughs> adaptation of the book. Um, so I'm interested in providing these kind of high quality, positive experiences that might help dispel some of the myths about age from both ends of the lifespan. Um, so this would be true um, for people who are young and for people who are old as well. And I've found in these discussion groups that they seem to find a lot of commonality or common ground um, and really connect on a person to person level. So we're just so excited to yes. continue that. I have been fascinated with those classes. Um, one thing I, I found really interesting is that, and it never really crossed my mind because I always had older generations around me. I had my grandparents, and you know, you just grow up naturally in that environment. You don't think about that there might be young people that aren't exposed to older generations. And so this is just such a great opportunity for them to talk to people and kind of just understand, get a better understanding of them. <laughs> Of where their what their life is like and what it's like to, you know, live long and healthy, <laughs> you know. And that's the key, you know, long and healthy. Like I'm really inspired to help people live longer, better. Like we're doing a great job of extending that average longevity or expected um, lifespan. But how do we really add like that quality and health and sense of purpose or maintain rather, um, or even increase those things at the end of life? Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, having these other older generations of like the family around. Um, so those same four-year-olds in the research study who had negative attitudes about older people in general did have positive attitudes about their own grandparents. Hmm, so we don't necessarily find that we kind of generalize our experiences with like specific, you know, family members to that group overall. Sometimes instead we might make an exception. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, another thing that I find with the intergenerational discussions is that our Ollie members, it just, they enjoy it so much. I have every single one of them that's done the class just rave about how fantastic it was to actually be able just to sit down and have a discussion with the students and not just talk uh, from their perspective of, um, you know, the lifespan and experiences and passing on their wisdom, but to actually listen to the students. I mean, I think that might be their favorite part of the class, honestly, because that's usually what they talk about when I um, ask them how the class went. So, Yes, I've received feedback from them as well, from the Ali at Pacific uh, members about how valuable it was to hear from the students. And um, I often have my students write papers or reports about the experience as well. Um, and I've had requests to read uh, copies of those papers. 
Um, but it does seem to be just a win-win where um, all parties seem to be getting things that are of kind of value um, out of the experience, even if it's not what you might even assume from a stereotypical point of view, like older people giving back, for example. Right. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Um, so you you mentioned the um, the book, uh, the book club we did, your class did, that we collaborated on with all the uh, members again, uh, Tuesdays with Maury, uh, classic book. Uh, it was really fun. I got to watch the film with you guys, and I enjoyed that because I read the book probably when it came out, like, what, 20-some years ago or whatever. And I remember reading it, and it was so touching and just such an important message. And watching the movie, uh, I was actually kind of surprised how well it held up for being a 20-year-old yep. movie. It was, it was yes. pretty good. The <laughs> actors were great, of course. And um, and then having the discussions and hearing the um, students' point of view afterwards. Uh, and I learned something <laughs> about um, aging. I I asked a question to pose to you because we talk about how in the movie – Young people, I mean, our culture focuses on young. Like, mm-hmm. we revere that. We look young and beautiful and, you know, as, as important to our culture. And I mentioned um, that it seems that other cultures maybe aren't so caught up in that and that they look to older people and um, there's more respect for the older generations. But you gave me a really interesting answer when I asked about that. <laughs> it kind of blew yes. my mind a little bit. <laughs> So one of the issues in this type of psychological research is that a person's attitudes and ideas are very abstract. We can't measure them directly or observe them directly. Um, So we use lots of different techniques to assess what we think probably represents their attitude in that moment. Um, So, for example, some research might use two different versions of uh, stimuli, um, have two different resumes, and they're identical in terms of the credentials, the education, the dates, and so forth. But the only thing that's changed is using like a male name or a female name for the, pro- for the first name. Um, or the only thing that's changed in a, a resume is giving the age of the person. And just that one word being changed dramatically influences how people respond, the whether or not the hiring managers say that they would hire the person, what starting salary you know they would offer the person. So we're trying to be a bit sneaky and get at what we think, you know, how we think these persons' attitudes might be affecting their behavior, even if they're not aware of it. Um, similarly, we find an age-based double standard with older adults and memory. You know, we might tell a story about um, a person who was out with friends and loses the keys to their car. And we find that when that person is identified as being 20, um, rather than identified as being 70, you know, people give excuses for that memory failure, such as, oh, he was having a good time, he's probably very busy, or she, you know, and then when the, the person is indicated being 70, oh no, we're worried, they might be losing their memory, they could be yeah. demented, did they right. even drive there? Um, And so that's one way that we look at people's attitudes. Another way, of course, is just asking them, Jennifer, how much do you like older people? (laughs) 
100 out of 100, very much, right? Of course, course, this has some obvious problems. Um, So people may not know really what they think. You know, they may be responding in the way they think that the researchers want them to respond. So they could be unintentionally or intentionally um, deceiving or being not as truthful on those responses. Um, and often that's the research that's done because it's easy. You send out a survey to lots of people and, and then you aggregate the results. And that's the work that shows that um, the kind of Western or individualistic cultures mm-hmm. like ours, right. where we really derive kind of our self-esteem from our own personal successes, for example, um, may have more negative attitudes about aging than these perhaps Eastern or collectivist cultures uh, where people derive their sense of meaning from this interdependence with others and from the success of their group. But when we measure attitudes towards aging, where we try to like tap in um, to those beliefs that people don't know that they have, the story is a little bit different. Um, and so one measure that psychologists use to look at this is called the Implicit Association Test. And it was created by scholars at Harvard. It's now Project Implicit. You can go to it, http colon slash slash um, like harvard.projectimplicit.edu or just, you know, put in Project Implicit Harvard. Mm -hmm. And they have so many different versions of this implicit association test or IAT test. And so the idea here is that they end up grouping or pitting against each other two different categories. It could be males and females or older people and younger people, um, or Democrats and um, Republicans. And then those groups are associated with um, categories of words that might represent something else, like good things and bad things, or things that might be stereotype consistent for one group, like unfortunately that old is slow or senile and things that might be stereotype inconsistent for that group. And so what the test measures is how quickly people respond when they're using one button that's the same button for pairing that group and the stereotype consistent words, like old with slow. Mm -hmm. You press Mm -hmm. the same button on the left for Mm -hmm. old with slow, Mm -hmm. and young with not slow, or young with good, or young with fast. But then they also switch it. And sometimes you have to use the same finger for a pairing that's stereotype inconsistent. So it might be the pairing between old and fast. Now you're using the same finger when you see stimuli that mean fast and the same finger when you see stimuli that mean um, old. Mm. And so the test over many, many, many iterations of this compares just how quickly people go when they have these pairs. Um, and the pairing is really just, are you using you know, your left hand or your right hand? Um, that are consistent with the stereotype or inconsistent. And what we think that the results mean is then the extent to which a person has a bias towards one of those groups, like older adults, or towards another one of those groups, like younger adults. And the reason I mentioned the Harvard website is because you can go and take any of these tests and they actually give you uh, your results compared to a incredibly large sample of people from the population. Oh, that's so cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, And they'll tell you if you have like a 
moderate or a strong preference for one group over the other. Um, I know I've deviated a little bit from your no, question, okay. but I'm getting back. <laughs> <laughs> You're explaining so, the background. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so I actually have a, a, a moderate preference for older people over younger people when I, t- when I oh, take really? this test, Just which moderate. is unusual. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I <know>. Well, <laughs> so, I think your actions actually in real life speak to that better than the test. <laughs> so one of the issues with this, though, is that when we test people and we're, com- we're saying compare apples and oranges, compare these two groups, we often get more extreme results. Like if I ask a person, you know, do you like apple? Or I test whether or not they eat an apple, you know, when they don't know they're being observed. And I test them, you know, on whether or not they eat an orange when they don't know they're being observed. And I ask them if they like oranges. Many people probably like both apples and oranges and eat both of the apples, the apple and the orange. Um, But this test makes them choose Mm. apple or orange. And we get much more extreme results where people seem to be biased towards one or the other when we ask questions or set up these tests in that sort of way where they're being compared. So there's lots of issues in studying how people actually feel about these social groups. Um, But to get back to your question, when we use tests that are supposed to be implicit, where we think that they're measuring the respondents' attitudes that they're not necessarily even aware of. And it could be through this speeded test um, or it could be through, you know, subliminal presentation of stimuli and things like that. Um, Those data suggest that there's actually no preference or more positive attitudes about aging in these kind of Eastern or um, collectivist cultures over the Western or individualistic ones. But we have so much more work as a field that we need to do to continue to improve our ways of measuring these things um, and to continue to address the real challenges of doing these cross-cultural comparisons. Um, Sometimes we say we're comparing the U.S. to China, but we're comparing, you know, one town in Massachusetts (laughs) (laughs) to one town in in China or in one of the provinces there. So... we have a far way to go. Right. Um, what I wanted to also talk a little bit more about um, is your lectures you've done for us. So you're a very popular speaker for Ollie because you tend to give your lectures on memory as we age. Mm-hmm. And, of course, for our members, that's a really important topic. And um, so they all show up for your lecture and they want to hear how, if anything, they can improve their memory or make sure that they, it doesn't deteriorate, you know, if they have anything that they can actively do to help with that process. So I love talking about memory. I love talking about aging. And I even more so love talking about memory and aging. Um, and collectively, the focus of my research is not necessarily on making people, you know, smarter or faster or stronger or more beautiful, you know, these kind of ability sorts of factors. The beautiful is a joke. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I just need to be accurate. Um, but I am instead really interested in these social cognitive factors that aren't necessarily ability 
Um, and these things could be, you know, responding to feedback on performance or setting goals or learning new strategies, maybe in a training program um, or elsewhere, and then kind of deliberately and thoughtfully picking a strategy that one knows. So having this kind of metacognitive thinking about the strategies that they know and then applying it to a particular memory task um, and increasing that kind of effort and persisting even when things are, are hard. Um, and also ways to kind of overcome our own self-evaluation of our uh, performance and our attitudes or our expectations. Like perhaps we think when I age, my memory will be bad, so I shouldn't bother trying to use this strategy, for example. Or so I think, think people second-guess themselves and start worrying when it could be just a regular, everyday thing that happens to everyone, like, oh, I left, I got to go back in the house because I forgot my lunch or whatever. And then, But as you age, you start to worry, oh, is this a sign of something, you know, and it, it makes you Absolutely. question things. So. Absolutely. And we have these daily experiences that can change how salient our age is for us at any point in time. So some days we might feel a little older than we are. Other days we might feel younger. Um, but we might have reminders that could be physical or social um, that can bring that to mind. And when this happens, we can actually self-stereotype. And so these negative attitudes about old age that used to not be about ourselves at all, it was about other people, so totally safe to have that be negative, um, is about me. It's about us. We're applying it to ourselves. Um, and Becca Levy at Yale University has the stereotype embodiment theory. Um, and she proposes that, you know, across our lifetimes there are these multiple pathways by through um, these negative stereotypes become internalized and then start to become self-relevant. And one of the issues with that, um, and I know you asked me about memory, and I'm getting back to, to, to memory, um, but one of the issues with these negative attitudes becoming about ourselves is that it can be related to change in behavior like you're suggesting, like not trying harder, um, giving up, or limiting oneself in some other way. And so I am interested in how we can change those sorts of factors to help people be successful in their memory, in their everyday lives, like in the here and now. Um, so I do basic research, um, research to examine how these factors interrelate and how they may um, affect each other and affect memory performance. And then I apply what I learned from that research to my intervention and training work um, to try to help people perform better, not only necessarily um, just because they're using a strategy, but perhaps, you know, doing the training or having the feedback is helping them feel more confident in their performance. And then that increased confidence might be boosting the benefits of like learning and using strategies with other people. Um, so, I mean, yes, this is a topic that's relevant for all the members. It's relevant for other people. Um, I love to talk about different techniques that people can use for memory. And we all start at different levels uh, and different things work for us. So I just learned a passcode to somebody's house last night. And then when they told it to me, I said, oh, 
I'm going to remember that because of the date of this and that and then the other. And then they gave me a second code. And I said, oh, I'm going to link that to this first code. (laughs) And now the person who was born in the code of the other one is this other thing. And I'm being really careful now to not accidentally give you the code to this person's house. (laughs) Well, you do association (laughs) in your mind to help connect it, to to sink in there in that file so you don't file it away. (laughs) Never remember it again. so. So, So I know that that strategy works for me. Um, and, you know, I would encourage people to explore and to try different strategies because not all memory strategies will work equally well for different people, but also they're not all good at helping the same types of memory. So root repetition, repeating a number mm-hmm. over and over, 8675309, isn't a very good way (laughs) some of you will get it (laughs) Um, that's not a good way of learning something long term because all you're doing is keeping it that piece of information like right there in the in the forefront of your mind where you're focusing on it at that point in time um, it is a good technique for keeping some information in, in mind, you know, long enough to punch it into your phone um, or to enter it into the computer or whatever you're, you need that passcode uh, or phone number for. Um, but counterintuitively, you know, other strategies where we're actually adding more information in to be learned um, can be easier to remember, especially if that additional information is personally relevant or distinctive or engaging or colorful. And so I'm not a good singer, but this this number, the eight six seven five three oh nine, it's from a it's from a song, you know, mm-hmm. Jenny, Jenny, Jenny I've got your number. I don't actually know all the words to it, but I I know the number from that song. song. I think it was the Greg Kin band, but I'm not, I have to Google it to make sure, because <laughs> my memory isn't serving me properly. <laughs> well, by the way, it's actually good to delete um, some information from your memory that you don't need. Right. You know, so we can I easily look that up. don't need 80s trivia? Come yeah, on. No. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably, that's another effective memory strategy, is picking what you want to learn and to remember and revisiting that information. Um but that song is actually more information. It has a tune. It has all of these other like lyrics. Um, but because it's engaging, distinctive, it uses other senses, um, it's easier to remember. And the same would be true if you were to elaborate on a list you wanted to learn by turning it into a story. The story would be easier than just the list of items, even though it's much mm-hmm. more information. Regardless, it's not necessarily about using the one perfect strategy or using it perfectly. Um, it's just about each person trying to do a little bit more and regardless of where they're starting to improve a little bit, right? Um, so memory strategies, memory training, using these techniques is not about getting things perfect um, mm-hmm. at all. And it's hard, it's hard work. Um, so one of the most important things is maintaining that motivation to keep putting forth that effort to use the techniques when there is something that that you've decided you do want to learn to remember for that long term. Um, So I would say, you know, keep it up, you know, keep a good attitude, keep trying, try different things. That's much more important. 
for me, I think um, what helps me a lot when I want to remember something is writing it down. Mm-hmm. Something happens, I think, and I know this but not for everyone, te- this technique, but for me, something happens like the connection to writing, to locking it in my brain, somehow it works for me. Mm-hmm. But I can't in everyday life write everything down. <laughs> I'm walking around. You right. meet someone. Excuse me. Let me write your name down. You know. <laughs> so that's a challenge. A little. It's a little harder technique. But I know when I do use it, it does help. So I learned so much of this from my uh, doctoral advisor, Dr. Robin West, and she is wonderful, and I'm eternally grateful to her for her guidance and advice. But one strategy that she uses because writing things down also is helpful for her um, is that she actually visualizes in her mind mm. like writing a person's name mm-hmm. like across their forehead yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might be able to imagine writing it down <laughs> okay um, and I, think I could see that working help being helpful <laughs> yeah but there is um, you know concern this is a contemporary issue as to whether or not you know students learn better when they're taking their notes yes. on the computer typing or whether they're actually writing and recording them. Um, and really anything that is about how students learn things in the classes, that's exactly the same as how all of us are using our long-term memory yeah. in our everyday lives. Right. Um, and you know the research is really mixed on this. You know, Initial reports were showing that handwriting notes is better and then there was some saying that it didn't matter and there's some saying that the computers are better. Um, so this suggests to me that it's not about the actual way the person is recording the notes, but instead there's some other factors about individuals that might make it where one is better for some people and the other is better for others. Um, or there's something else that complicates the picture. And, and my guess, based on what I know about kind of cognition in general and attention and memory and how they all link, Um, is that it depends on how people are actually thinking about the material and what they're writing or typing. So I don't know about you, but when I am typing out notes, I am like a court stenographer. It is going straight from my ears to my fingers to the computer. (laughs) Not getting locked into the brain at all. It's not getting, it isn't even passing through. It's bypassing. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and that is certainly not going to be helpful for learning. I don't need to compare different note-taking techniques because that you cannot learn and remember something if you don't pay attention to it in the first right. place. Impossible. Um, but usually, though, when people take handwritten notes, or oftentimes um, they're actually they're thinking about the information, and then they're writing it down in their own words, in a concise way. They're thinking about the phrase or that idea that they wanted to learn and, and they're, what's going to help them remember what it is that they just listened to. This is a much more active, deliberative process that would aid learning. So perhaps some people, young, old, can do that on the computer. And then that's why we see that there's kind of these mixed results over what's um, better or not. Yeah, I imagine... Moving forward, we'll get more um, research from that and learn, you know, because it is kind of a new phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. They just, some schools don't even teach uh, handwriting anymore. <sighs> I know, it's so disappointing to me. I love cursive writing. Yes. To me, it's very, I don't know, it, it, I, I can't imagine printing everything. I, I no. don't know. It, 
just doesn't seem the same. Obviously, it's not the same, but in regards to, like, as a student or as someone who likes to write, you know, it's just such a completely different feeling. I know. But um, anyway, getting off topic, yeah. sorry. But that's one of the <laughs> issues of studying aging in general. Like, when we want to study age, we have to be very careful to see if we're actually studying age per se or if perhaps what we're finding is a difference because of cohort or generation, like when a person's born. Um, so we find, for example, that older people today are much better at numeracy, like percentages and ratios and fractions, than younger people today. Oh. Um, although there's another finding, the Flynn effect, that suggests with a different type of research design that each generation is actually getting smarter than the generation before. Which is good news overall, yeah, right? It's good news. Too late for us, Glad to but hear good that. news yeah. overall. <laughs> What's that called? The Flynn effect? <laughs> the Flynn effect. F-L-Y-N-N. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it may be that when we just at one point in time compare people of different ages, that we're not actually finding a difference because of their age, per se. We might be finding a difference because of when they grew up mm-hmm. or what they were teaching in school, for mm-hmm. example, like you and I had rigorous uh, training and practice in cursive and in handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of my students this week said, please don't make me handwrite anything more for the research my hand hurts. <laughs> I'm not used to it. I haven't had that training. <laughs> Maybe you and I would even have like a stronger grip strength you know, than these <laughs> students from the writing. I don't know. Um, so let me, I wanted to ask you. What you think, well, let me, I have two questions for you. One is, what would be your number one um, recommendation in improving memory? Okay. Like, what's the one best tip that you have for that? So, one tip I mentioned uh, already is the stay positive, keep trying, What find out what motivates you and do it. Um, and of course, I'm going to give you more than one tip, even though you only okay. asked ask for just one, but I will not comply. Um, so the other recommendation that I would make is actually to do a wide variety of things, because there's some um, research recently I've done with my collaborator, Dr. Rachel Wu at, at UC Riverside, Um, suggesting that actually broad learning, like intensively learning new skills over a long period of time, is what can drive continued cognitive growth in late life, Um, not just maintenance, let alone like preventing decline. Um, And so my recommendations would be to challenge yourself to try a variety of things so that there's something novel, so you're learning, um, but also to push to that next level. Um, So if you are doing the crossword puzzle, that's great. I'm doing it too. But usually that just helps you get better at doing the crossword puzzle. Um, So at least push to that next level and move towards from Monday to Wednesday to the Sunday, you know, New York Times puzzle. Um, But also introduce some variety and do some other activities that are going to flex and practice other parts of your cognition that you want to keep growing. if I was just to recommend only one activity, which I wouldn't, because really the recommendation is to do more, <laughs> dancing. Dancing. Get out and dance. Oh, yes. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it has um, components that are physical. You're getting some, some exercise, some movement. 
Um, it has components that are social, you're engaging with others, you know, conversing, and it has some memory components directly and learning directly. Right. If right. you're learning Step. new dance moves, doing the steps. Yeah. Um, so dancing is one um, activity that seems to be really helpful. Interesting. But do more, you know, yeah, stay don't, motivated don't and, and do more. Do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Variety is the spice of life, they say. Okay. And then my last question to you, and then we'll wrap things up, is what would you say, in your opinion, is the biggest myth about aging? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think the most harmful myth is the idea that aging is inevitable decline. Um, so... The traditional approach to studying aging was just that people are either getting better or they're getting worse, and everything gets better from childhood to early adulthood, and then it gets worse, and that's it. There's nothing you can do to counteract that. Um, and this is no longer accepted uh, by research at all. So we instead focus on plasticity, the idea that people can grow and change at any point, um, I was taught in school that we have a certain number of brain cells when we're born, and that's it. Don't sniff glue. That's all you got. <laughs> um, but, you know, the reality shows that there's actually neuronal growth even in our 90s that's possible. Oh, um, that's interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Good to hear. You can teach old dogs new tricks. I hate the adage, but um, I think that's a really harmful myth about aging when people internalize it and think that it's it's true so yeah that's that's a good one and last I wanted to ask you about um your research you you have some ongoing research right that you're doing are you still looking for volunteers for that um so we are always looking for volunteers um and my website is just my last name stricklandhughes.com so that's S-T-R-I-C-K-L-A-N-D-H-U-G-H-E-S dot com. Um, so right now I'm working with an excellent uh, master's student who's in her first semester, and she is planning the design of her thesis project. So we hope to be actively recruiting people for that work, um, looking again at this relationship between our beliefs about our performance and our how well we can do with our memory um, in 2020. So we're looking for people for that. Um, and we've wrapped up the data collection on an interesting study where we're trying to help people counteract these age stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, but information on how to sign up and a couple of memory tips is on a for the community section of the website, too. Okay. So thank right. you for mentioning that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Of course. I'm going to give you a plug. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and if you um, are not sure how to find that, you can always contact us at ollie ollie.pacific.edu phone number 9467658 we can always steer you in the right direction and get you in touch with carla um i think that's a wrap I, unless you have any uh, closing statements you want to make or um i'm just aging isn't bad and it doesn't begin when you're old but thank you so much for having me i love ollie at pacific i'm a so pleased to be a part of the community and I'm, I'm a member as well that's so. right mm-hmm. we love having new members and <laughs> having Carla as a great member and all of the, the knowledge and wealth she brings to our, our um, program is we're very grateful to have you and uh, you're such a great asset we're so lucky and I really appreciate everything you do for Ollie and thanks for coming on our podcast today being the very first oh, official gosh. interview I was so tickled <laughs> it, is, it is mutual thank you so much thanks yeah. for coming Thank you.
This podcast was brought to you by Pacific Tiger Broadcasting. Check us out on Instagram at PTB Live or on our website at ptblive.com. <laughs>